You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome into another episode of the Five Reasons Podcast, a more somber episode than usual. I'm Ethan Skolnick here with Chris Winningham. We did not have plans to podcast tonight, but we felt that we should do this after the passing of former Dolphins coach Tony Sperano at the age of 56. The, na- the news came down here earlier on Sunday. Tony, of course, was the coach of the Dolphins from 2008 through the 13th game of the 2011 season. He had an 11-5 and season in 2008, what is known as the Wildcat season, a season which ended uh, in the playoffs after the Dolphins won the division, beating the Jets and Brett Favre up at the Meadowlands to win the AFC East in a year uh, that Tom Brady was injured, but still a great accomplishment, 2008, winning the AFC East. And Tony Sperano. Still the only team to have won the division in uh, since the Patriots won their first Super Bowl. Exactly, since 2001. So going all the yeah. way, all the way back there. And so what we wanted to do today, Chris, was we wanted to remember Tony Sperano, not just ourselves. And again, I was covering the Dolphins uh, quite a bit during that period of time. I was a columnist at the Sun Sentinel from 2002 through 2010. So for those last uh, three years that I was at the Sun Sentinel before I went to the Palm Beach Post to cover the big three heat, um, I was covering the Dolphins about 60% of the time during that period of time. Because if you remember, the heat at that point were good, but they were not really going anywhere at that stage. It was Dwayne Wade and not a whole lot else. So we devoted a lot of our resources to the Dolphins in those days. And of course, they had a terrific season in 2008. So during the, this podcast, we're going to bring in four different guests. Um, we're going to speak to Greg Camarillo, who played for the Dolphins in 2008, has fond memories of Tony Sperano. We're going to speak to Andy Kent, who was at Dolphins.com during Sperano's years. So he got an inside perspective on Sperano, something that a lot of the media members from the outside didn't necessarily get. And also, we're going to play you some clips uh, that are going to be appearing on our network in other episodes this week. Uh, we did an episode with Omar Kelly and Chris Perkins, a Sun Sentinel Dolphins training camp preview, which we're going to run at some point before training camp starts. And during that episode, Omar Kelly spoke a lot about Tony Sperano and how his players felt for him. We want to include that in this episode. And we're also going to include a clip from Mike Pouncey. Uh, Mike Pouncey and his brother Marquis sat in with OJ McDuffie and Seth Levitt from Fish Tank. That episode also posting this week. But during that episode, Mike Pouncey spoke about playing for Tony Sperano, and so we're going to include that as well. So, Chris, I want to start here uh, with some of my recollections of Tony Sperano, and particularly that 2008 season, which, as you mentioned, um, is is one of the the only really memorable seasons in Dolphins history since about 2002, 2003. I mean, if you I, go I, back- I, re- I realized today it was the height of my Dolphins fandom. Like, it, it started with. The playoff game that I think they played against Baltimore, I forget the, where the, that was the second. 2001. Yeah, that was 2001. I remember going, that was the first Dolphins game I went to. 
and then uh, and then kind of the first season that they made the playoffs that was fun and uh, you know from the very be- well not really from the very beginning but kind of from the, from the the post wildcat point on and they they won a bunch of games uh, what was that 08 season so uh, it, it is probably the most fun football season that I've had in my life probably since last hurricane season but it, it was super fun and it was it's actually been super fun to reminisce about it today because you kind of sort of get caught up in the characters of, of, of football and, and and of sports and you sort of cease to think about the positive memories and, and, and the cool things that happened but no doubt that season was really fun and as a fan that didn't have a ton to root for from a football point of view that's one of the most fun seasons that I've had and here's the thing about it it was the most unlikely season in Dolphins history uh, because you you were coming off a one in 15 season under Cam Cameron. And then the Dolphins lost their first two games under Tony Sperano. So they lost 17 out of 18 games, 17 out of 18 games um, coming into the third game of the 2008 season. They had picked up Chad Pennington off the scrap heap. The Jets did not want him anymore. Remember the Dolphins had a choice at number one overall after Bill Parcells came in of taking either Jake Long or Matt Ryan. They chose Jake Long, took Chad Henney in the second round. That didn't end up working out so well, but Chad Pennington became free in August, and because he had played for Bill Parcells before, the Dolphins were able to jump on him and insert him in the system. And so then they lose their first two games of that year. There are not high expectations for that team at all. They go up to New England after losing 31-10 to to Arizona to play Bill Belichick team, Tom Brady's team, they unveil the Wildcat, win 38 to 13, pile up 461 yards of, of total yardage, okay, totally dominate uh, the, the Patriots with Ronnie Brown going absolutely nuts. Scored five and touchdowns in the game. Five touchdowns in one game, which, uh, you know, Ronnie Brown, look, uh, in 2005 drafted second overall, had been sort of a bit of a disappointment. Like, uh, not that he was a bad player, but just that he hadn't lived up to that draft status. And then he has that unbelievable game. They win the next game against San Diego. They lost a couple. And then from two and four, they end up winning nine of their last 10 games. Again, as I said, win up in New York, and I was there for that one. I covered this team home and road. I was there for that one up at the Meadowlands, and that locker room was one of the most jubilant locker rooms I've ever been in, Uh, whether it was Chad Pennington or Joey Porter, who had a resurgent year that year. uh, Those guys were incredibly excited about what they accomplished. And so that is a season that will go down sort of in history for the Dolphins, particularly because, as you said, it's such an outlier from all of the sort of drab seasons that they've had after and before. Now, Tony Sperano's era did not end great, right? The next two seasons after that, they were seven and nine. Um, then he did not have a good start to the to the uh, to the next season in 2011. Things got stale. Um, but what he did with that group of players in 2008 was really tremendous. And that team, you know, set records. Um, they committed the fewest turnovers in a season for an NFL team. And what Tony talked about when he came in, which was tough smart, disciplined. I remember that first press conference with Parcells and with Jeff Ireland. That team put it into practice. Chad Pennington mm-hmm. did not make mistakes. And, 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 were, and every coach says that too, right? They say, we're going to be tough and smart and disciplined, but that team actually did it. 
Yeah, they did it. I mean, they did not commit any turnovers, did not make any mistakes. And look, things leveled off the next couple seasons, because if you look at that year, you know, when you have a year like 2008 where you don't make mistakes, uh, where you win a ton of close games and they won a bunch of close games, there was a stretch there. Um, they beat Buffalo by nine, Denver by nine, Seattle by two, the Raiders by two, then got blown out by the Patriots. And they beat the Rams by four, and then the Niners by, by five, the Chiefs by seven, and the Jets I, by I rem- seven. I remember the, the one I remember the most is the Niners game. That was the one where you leave the stadium and walking into the parking lot, and it was just pure elation. Now you beat a pretty mediocre, <laughs> a pretty mediocre Forty ers team, but it was still like, holy crap, we're actually going to do this. I mean, in some in some of the things that you just described sound very similar to the way they made the playoffs. In in the when uh, in Adam Gase's first year in 2016, mm-hmm. where you need nine out of nine out of ten after a pretty poor start, and you kind of wonder is this real? But when you're experiencing it, you don't care. And one of the things that really stands out to me, you mentioned how it's record setting in not having turnovers. It's also record setting in. I would imagine there can't be a team that had a bigger turnaround year over year plus ten. There can't be very many other instances in the history of the league where a team won 10 more games the next year than they did the year before. Now, it takes a certain kind of incompetence to even set up <laughs> that kind of situation, but still, it's incredible to think they won 10 more games one year over the other, and part of that's Chad Pennington, part of that's the Wildcat, but part of that's Tony Sperano. And to do it after you lost your first two also. So you won 10 more games after losing the first two games of the season, which is, as you said, incredible. Now they got to the playoffs and Baltimore was just better, right? And they yeah, lost it's, it was it was, a, it was similar to the Pittsburgh game for the 16 team where it's like, oh, okay, they're, they're, just, they're, they're a class above. I remember like eventually talking myself into the game with, with the same model that they had all year. Well, if we don't turn the ball over and, you know, Chad Pennington's a great game and the defense shuts down the right. No, the, the Ravens were decidedly better. That was kind of like the last... Last year that it w- even because even though the the Ravens won the Super Bowl they kind of won it in a different fashion than classic mm-hmm. Ravens that was a classic Ravens team with an impenetrable defense and they really made Chad Pennington's arm look like it was you know like it was at its end right like it it, it hadn't sort of revealed its like he'd never had a strong arm but it never looked weaker than when than when he was going against that Ravens team. Yeah, and you look at the last six games of that regular season, the Dolphins committed five total turnovers, and then they committed five turnovers against Baltimore in that game. So it it all came rushing upon them. But yeah, so that's that's the season that we want to remember tonight, that 2008 season, and just the joy that that team played with. And, you know, to me, what was the most amazing part of it was that it wasn't Tony Sperano's idea. It was David Lee's idea, the quarterback's coach. But Tony embraced it, went with it, and even two years later was defending it. You know, if you go to 2010, I wrote a column for the Sun Sentinel. Okay, it's time to give up on the Wildcat because it, it had become a negative mm-hmm. play for them. But And then, and then what, they drafted two with Pat White. They drafted two with Pat White in 2009, <laughs> which was a disaster, and he got killed in the Pittsburgh game. But, you know, at, at the time, it was revolutionary, and – everybody started doing it. And what you see, teams still do it. You know, we're, we're 10 years later, yeah. and there are teams still running that kind of wild Hurricanes used it a lot last year. Right. And it, it's in college. It's in high school. Now, I know some of it emanated from there, um, but the pro teams all picked it up. And as you said, a lot of teams started drafting to it. I, I wanted to get into a little bit of Tony as a personality here um, because I did get a chance to spend some time with him alone. And I did cover a number of different coaches with the Dolphins and of the coaches I covered and Omar is going to speak to this a little bit too here on the pod tonight. 
uh, he was among the more genuine, I would say. Um, there wasn't a lot of bullshit with Tony Sperano. Like if, if he was angry at you, you knew, um, but he was also vulnerable. He was not boastful like Saban and some of the other coaches who've been around. He wasn't perfect. He would trip up at press conferences sometimes. Um, I did write columns about some of the decisions during games. He had a really bad run over like a five or six week period where he seemed to be calling timeouts at all the wrong times. Um, so, I, you know, he wasn't perfect, but his players adored him. Um, that was the biggest thing. And his players, I think, were still with him even when he was ushered out the door in 2011. And that's hard for a coach to do when you're not having success. Mm -hmm. So I think that's to his credit. But also, he was, he was just a regular dude. Like, you know, I remember going out to Dallas before he got hired, when we, we kind of thought that he would be the head coach. They had just hired Parcells. Sperano was on the short list, as was Ireland. And so I went out to Dallas. I spent a few days out there, uh, kind of commiserated a little bit with, with my friend Todd Archer, who's still covering uh, the Cowboys, but had covered the Dolphins previous for several years for the Palm Beach Post. And so we talked a lot about Tony. He knew Tony really well. And I went out to write a story about Tony. And I got from all of the players out there just the affection that they had for Tony, the respect that they had for Tony, um, not necessarily as an X's and O's guy, but just as somebody that they just trusted right mm -hmm. that they knew that they went to tony with information he was going to try to give them the right answer it wasn't going to be spread to everyone else um and i remember too there was you know this was kind of at the height of the sopranos too and so there were a lot of those tony sopranos tony sperano jokes and it, you can probably still find it i'll try to find it and put it on the five reasons sports twitter feed there was actually like a parody video that was done where Tony actually sat in a restaurant like Tony Soprano did um, and acted as Tony Soprano. So he had a bit of a sense of humor in that way. Uh, huge, huge New York Mets fan, like, like outsized New York Mets fan, like as crazy a New York Mets fan as any New York Mets fan you'll find. And I remember how excited he was when he went up to Port St. Lucie for spring training. I think it was 2009 or 2010 and he got some signed jerseys. Like that, that's what I'm talking about in terms of, of a regular guy. And, you know, as we hear about him passing tonight, the first thing that struck me was how worried he always was about his health. Um, and the one memory of Tony that I'll always have is after practice would end before he met with us or some, sometimes often after he met with us, like if you hung out on the field a little bit, like we used to tape um, some live stuff, live video for the Sun Sentinel after practices. So it would be myself and Dave Hyde, Omar Kelly, um, and a couple of others would be out there taping. And this would be like 15, 20 minutes after Tony met with the media. And Tony would be running the steps at the Davy practice facility, just up and back, up and back, up and back. And he would do this for 20, 30 minutes after every practice. Um, his, his health was a big concern to him. And I remember he came back, I can't remember which year it was, but one of the three seasons, he came back a lot heavier than he'd been the year before. And then, you know, this was after, I think 2009, he came back a lot lighter. Then 2010, he came back a lot heavier. So his weight would fluctuate a little bit. Uh, he would talk about his health quite a bit and about needing to stay in shape. Um, and I just, it, that's, it, Chris, I got to admit, that's the first thing that, that hit me today. Mm -hmm. um, when you see someone who passes at age 56, that his health was kind of an ongoing battle. I think sort of, you know, his weight, his conditioning and all that was an ongoing battle. Um, and so, you know, those are some of the memories. But as far as a person goes, 
Um, again, very genuine. I, you know, there were some other things that, that came across. Like, Tony always wore the dark shades. Remember that? Like, yep. he would always mm -hmm. wear... And there was this, and people get made fun of for this. Um, and I actually had to write a column. This was in September. And so basically there was a broadcast on CBS um, and then it was on NFL Network as, as well, where they made light of Tony wearing shades indoors in Minnesota. Okay. As if he was trying to look cool. And they hadn't read any of the stories, which we'd written, which the, even the New York Times had written, uh, that when he was a kid working in a Connecticut restaurant up in New Haven, which he talked about all the time, his eyes were splashed with hot grease. And he lost his sight for about a month. Um, and so even you know, in his later years, he would tear up really easily when he was exposed uh, to bright light. And he would keep his office like really dark when he worked in it, at all hours, by the way. And, and so, again, there was just a sort of a lot of misunderstanding about him, like, mm -hmm. you know, that he was this tough guy wearing glasses, too cool for school, you know, pumping his fist after field goals. That was a big meme at the time. Um, but really, he was in a lot of ways very vulnerable, very genuine um, and, again, concerned in a lot of ways about his health. And, and so th that's some of the stuff that came to mind for me tonight. For me, the thing that kind of comes to mind is – and, and we were talking about this in our in our group chat and our DM stirring with all the hosts on the network, and we found out. And when you called me to tell me, and I was I was just like I, I was stunned. And to me, I, I, you know, obviously I, I turned to Twitter, and you know, you see kind of an outpouring of support, and I kind of find that unbelievable because at every turn when he became was he interim coach of the Jets. Uh, yeah, I, I, or, or he was no, off, no, no, he no, was no. offensive coordinator. He was offensive coordinator for Rex Ryan, um, mm -hmm. and then uh, for for the Raiders too. So he's with the Jets, and obviously it's all the jokes about field goals and all that stuff. And then with the Raiders, he has this whole thing where you know he's you know uh, he buries a football to kind of signal you know the end of the previous era and how it's going to start anew, and then that gets made fun of. So like in some ways he had kind of become a punchline to a lot of Dolphins fans by the time that he now kind of moves on throughout his career. And yet today it was all about the 08 season and mm -hmm. all this, you know, positive stuff that people remember about Tony Sperano providing one of the few moments of Dolphins joy in the last kind of 15 years. And that really warms my heart because it's, it's something that I think gets talked about in a negative way, right? Where when people die, you tend to focus on the positive things and not the negatives. And in some, I think people sort of say, well, it's an incomplete picture. It's not the actual way that they were in their life. And you're just trying to remember the positive. And yet, so often we do the opposite. We, we so often try and, and, and kind of pick people apart and pick things apart. And particularly in sports where we're constantly trying to find debates, you know, d debating and, and, and mockery is kind of the language of the day. And so to see a moment where you put aside all this stuff that you, you know, kind of, you know, held on to that he was a field goal merchant and that, you know, he, he you know, and, and all these negative things. No, you remember for a team that generally does not get associated with positive things as the, the Miami Dolphins, were remembered in a positive light today. And Tony Sperano was remembered in a positive light today. And I think it's something that we should do more for the living <laughs> because I, I think too often it does happen in death. But as much as, you know, okay, maybe, you know, you're, you're glossing over thinking that he was a punchline for, you know, eight years. But 
I think it's really cool that I think people found this capacity today to to look at YouTube clips of his greatest games and remember some of the more fond moments of that 08 season. And I was really heartened by it. And I, I really kind of found that it was awesome that people turned to the things that they remembered in a positive way rather than the opposite. And and I, and I long may it continue because I think Tony Sperano, from everything that we've read, and you kind of mentioned your experience with, uh, with it, I read a great tweet from Jeff Darlington of ESPN today where he wrote, at the risk of minimizing any of the other great coaches and people in the NFL, I don't think I've ever met someone who cared more about his players, truly cared about their well-being than Tony Sperano. And when you juxtapose him against some of the stories you've heard about Nick Saban uh, d- during his tenure with Miami, like that, that is not something... I, I've encountered much in football. Football, because of the nature of the contracts and, and the way that uh, players end up dealing with management in a way that ends up being negative, I, I think to hear someone say that, it, it's such an outlier for me in the world of football. I think speaks to the man that Tony Sperano was. So I'm glad that even after the last few years of his career and the last few years of his Dolphins tenure and, and how some people treated him, that people still found the capacity to treat him this way today. And I hope his family gets to see even an inkling of it and, and the impact that he ended up leaving. Yeah, and, and you mentioned being a punchline. And, and I think, you know, look, that happened inside the organization too because, um, you know, he was not treated well <laughs> at the end, uh, you know, by any means. Um, you know, finding out, uh, you know, that his, you know, his friend, uh, you know, who was general manager at the time, Jeff Ireland, who he came in with in Miami and as well as the owner, Steve Ross were actively recruiting, you know, Jim Harbaugh, getting on a plane to visit with Jim Harbaugh and then having to come back kind of and say, okay, Tony, um, you know, we're still with you. That's a really uncomfortable situation. It's not the first time it's happened in dolphin history, by the way, it happened, uh, you know, with, with Dave Wanstead and Rick Spielman and, and some other situations uh, that the dolphins have had. But I thought Tony handled that as well as you could possibly handle it under the circumstances, but he was a punchline at that stage because it was like, okay, they're, they're out there looking for a better coach and I still got to coach this team. And I, I know because I knew a lot of the players on that team because I did cover, as I said, the 2008 team. So a lot of them were still there. Uh, they didn't like the way that that was handled because they cared genuinely about Tony. And, you know, just remembering some of the expressions that Tony had, uh, don't eat the cheese. That was a big one. Can't snow the snowman. Uh, know and know that you know. That was something he said to players um, all of the time. And I, I found this in an article. And again, this this is the health thing again. Um, I wrote a little bit of a bio about him. And one of the things I wrote, I said, he's an even bigger fan of Coconut Mounds ice cream, but avoids it these days as he works on becoming smaller. He entered training camp 55 pounds lighter. And as I said earlier, and often is seen walking the stairs of the Davy facility. So, um, you know, he was, again, trying to take care of his health, um, but his players did genuinely uh, care about him. And I would say this uh, straight out of all the coaches that, that I covered with the Dolphins, you know, Jimmy, Saban. Um, Cameron, uh, Philbin, I was there just a little bit. I wasn't around Campbell, but of, 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 uh, of all the guys that I, I covered, I would say Tony was the most genuine. And, and to me, that's uh, the best way to eulogize him today. But we're going to bring on others to do it as well. As I said, we're going to hear during this episode from Greg Camarillo, Andy Kent, Mike Pouncey, and Omar Kelly. One of the things we wanted to do on tonight's podcast was get perspectives other than our own. And so we reached out uh, to a former Dolphin player, someone that I do consider uh, a friend, was one of my my favorite Dolphins that I covered 
during my time around the team. Now lives out in San Diego, played for the Dolphins for more than four seasons. And actually in the 2008 season that we just got done talking about, had 55 catches in 11 games in an 11 win season. And we wanted to start here with Greg Camarillo, um, who again is out in the San Diego area now. Greg, how did the news strike you today of Tony Sperano's passing? Just wild. You know, it's uh, something that you'd never expect from somebody so young. Um, got a text from a former teammate, Patrick Cobbs. Uh, he didn't have any details. He just told me he died. And, and so then I went searching the internet and Twitter to, to kind of get more information. And um, just kind of unreal. When was the last time that you talked to Tony? Oh, man, it's been a long time. Um, to be honest with you, I don't think I've seen him. And since two or three weeks after I was traded from the Dolphins to the Vikings, we played each other. Uh, and I saw saw him then. Um, that would have been the first time I would have seen him as an opposing coach. Um, probably the last time that I saw him um, on a football field or, or saw him at all. One of the memories that people have of you, of course, is you're the one who kept the Dolphins from infamy in that 2007 season under Camp Cameron. Um, the, the catch, the touchdown, the one win during that year. And I know that although that was a highlight, and we've talked about that before when we've had you on our radio show, um, the season itself was frustrating. So what we wanted to do a little bit with you was see if you could take us through what that next offseason was and kind of your first interactions with Tony and if you felt at the time that things were going to change a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, a- a- everything changed. So that uh, off going into that offseason, you knew it had to change from being pretty much one of the worst teams in NFL history, um, the team being sold, and then uh, Parcells kind of taking the reins on things. You knew everything was going to change. Um, I didn't really know what to expect. And then uh, Parcells came in, and you know he's got a kind of a reputation for being a tough guy, um, you know, a hard ass when it comes to football and all that. So you figure something, someone along those lines was, was going to come in and that's exactly what happened. And it, um, to correct a team that had been so bad, you need things that are going to be drastically different. And Tony Sperano was that he was that, that tough. Uh, we're going to work to create this change. It's not just going to happen. Um, and that's what we needed, and that's what Parcells got us, and that's what Coach Morano delivered. Do you have a story of a specific thing that changed or, or something that you remember, man, this is way different than it was under Cam Cameron, or just sort of generally as, as it relates to the Dolphins? Do you have a, a specific thing that you remember changing a lot? Yeah, yeah, a few things. So the first thing was, uh, and I think it was a Parcells-led meeting, but um, they brought out the binders of – injuries so the the trainer's notes and all the documented injuries and it was it was gigantic it was it might even be multiple binders sits it on the table in front of the entire team meeting room and slaps it down it's a loud picture like a gigantic dictionary uh and that was their first change you say you can't win when you have this many injuries this is going to change you can't stay healthy you're not going to be here uh and they held very true to that guys uh were miraculously more healthy when their job was on the line uh, and they knew that that's what the culture change was going to start. We're going to have tough guys that fight through little things that um, can stay healthy and can help us on the field. Uh, and that was more of a management um, change. As far as coaching style on the field, Coach Barano and Cam Cameron are totally different. Uh, Coach Barano is, was not afraid of, of throwing an F-bomb around, of, of yelling at you. Um, 
and that was his style. You know, he was a, he was a tough coach, a tough guy, uh, and he was going to bring that to the field every day. Um, he was going to yell. He was going to bring that energy. He was going to get on you in, in both ways. If you did something great, he was going to yell and praise you and, and pat you on the back. If you did something bad, he was going to yell and get you to fix it. Uh, but that's what he brought. He brought that that tough love, energy, yelling, excitement type of motivation. What were the conversations that he had with you? Did, did he have any conf- – because, you know, you come off that 2007 season, and again, like you said – almost everybody was out of there um, at a certain point. Like it just didn't look uh, like anybody was going to survive that season. And then you come back for that next season and you ended up having, you know, a pretty sizable role again to have 55 catches. Uh, What kind of conversations did you have with Tony? Not until uh, no like personal conversations until really during the season, you know, he had so much to go through. So, so many uh, people to figure out so many positions to figure out. Um, But then, I was a backup receiver pretty much my whole career going into that first training camp of 2008 with coach Barano. Um, and we didn't really have a set group as far as receivers and even through training camp. Um, no, I didn't stand out as a starter by any means. And then come week one, um, suddenly I became a starting receiver. And so he took me to the side and explained that, um, you know, we're going to put you out there and it's because, uh, we've got faith in you. You know, you've, you've shown nothing but consistency in practice. And, you know, I know that you're going to do a jo- good job out there. And, and as a guy who had never started before, I was obviously nervous about the role, worried that, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't live up to that position. But then he knew that speaking to me personally would give me that extra little bit of confidence to go out there and do a good job. And so you play a pivotal role in that team and, and kind of the, the style of play as well under Chad Pennington. Uh, what sort of, because obviously that team never turned the ball over, what were kind of the, the ways in which you guys tried to reduce risk and, and use Chad Pennington's skill set to your advantage and, and how much of that came from Tony? Well, the uh, the reducing reducing risk factor from Sprano was if you, if you um, risk something and it didn't work out you you weren't going to be playing and it was a very clear cutthroat message where it's if, uh, you're going to deliver or you're not going to be here uh and it stressed me out i can't lie it was tough but um that's the kind of guy he was he was it was no nonsense this is what i need this is what i expect from you uh, and that's what i need you to do um so practice was run that same way we expect high performance we expect you to know the details we expect you to get things right and you're going to do it right in practice practice was harder than the game and they did that on purpose uh, so that way come sunday you were gonna uh you're gonna operate and you're gonna do things well but um you know i can't discredit the the leadership from chad pennington you know he showed up uh, middle of training camp and, and within you know the first practice was our team leader and his uh, attention to detail his um, ability to get everybody on the same page at the same time was a huge part of, of um, us having a, a, an offense that clicked. So let's take you now, Greg, to game three of that season. So as you said, sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. 
Chad comes in during the middle of training camp, but things don't go too well in those first two games. And you guys actually got blown out in Arizona. When did you find out that the offense was going to be unleashing this new weapon in the Wildcat? a game that ended up with Ronnie Brown yeah. having five touchdowns in new England against Bill Belichick and the Patriots. Was, was there a meeting during that week? Did you find out right before the game? How did you know this was going to be such a big part of the offense? That, it's funny you bring that up. So when you guys asked um, to talk about coach Brown, I was thinking of kind of pivotal moments um, in our turnaround in Miami that he led. And that was one of the first things that came to mind. And, you know, you're 0-2 coming off a 1-15 season. At that point, a lot of coaches might start losing the team. Uh, but Tony wasn't going to let us do that. Uh, so we go into our offensive meeting, and, and on Wednesday when you're um, going through your, your base game plan, here's the Wildcat. And so um, Dan Henning, our offensive coordinator, showed us uh, video clips of it from, God, it must have been Arkansas with, uh, totally blanking on it. QB coach's name, uh, Coach Lee. Uh, and so he was showing us old college tapes of this Wildcat play. And we, it was cool. It was fun. It was exciting. But nobody really knew if it was going to work. You know, we had the perfect guy running it, Ronnie Brown. It takes an incredibly talented, smart human being to pull it off. Uh, and then I remember, you know, Coach Morano going into that week. And you, know, you would love to think a leader was like, had the utmost confidence in what we were doing, but you could even tell from his comments or just his demeanor that it was either like, this is going to be amazing or this is going to be hideous. Um, but it was fun. And we went out, we went into it together and I don't think a single person knew how it was going to turn out. It was, it was we were either going to be a laughing stock or we were going to be, uh, you know, patted on the back and congratulated for our creativity. And, and luckily it was the latter and no, better team to do it against than the Patriots and to sit on the sideline and watch Belichick get frustrated uh, was awesome. So Greg, what if it doesn't work though? Cause as you mentioned, Tony was trying to make sure that he didn't lose the team, but you, like you said, you'd lost 17 out of your last 18 games over. It was those... always going to work, Ethan. It, there, there, there was never a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> but but what if it didn't like I, I mean what if you go up to New England and, and it bombs and Ronnie fumbles twice and you know it doesn't end up with anywhere near five touchdowns and then you I get mean, up I, I'm, I'm, gonna give, I'm gonna give coach yeah I'm gonna give coach Brown the credit that he, that he knew it wouldn't it, I mean you, you wouldn't trust someone unless it's somebody like Ronnie Brown like you're not just gonna let you know Joe Schmo catch a snap and, and hand it off uh you, you had a, a, a sure-handed smart guy back there that could figure it out uh, but I mean, we we're all kind of fearful of that. What, you know, people laughed at us all in the 2007. We were the laughing stock of the NFL. And here we are, 0 and 2 in Foxborough, about to attempt some potential nonsense. And, and fortunately, it worked. I mean, cl clearly, if it didn't work, you know, we would have run it maybe once and twice. It would have been a bad highlight. You would have, it would never had a nickname. It would have been uh, out, of, out of our minds in a week or two. But, uh, sometimes you just got to go for it and roll the dice. And that's what coach did. Was that now we, we kind of, the, the image of Tony Sperano is kind of always of him, you know, fist pumping after field goals. And, and it was a team that, that was kind of conservative and not want to turn the ball over and, you know, play the, an old school way of football. And yet that feels like the ultimate risk and the ultimate bit of aggression. Uh, how, how does, how do you remember Tony Sperano more as kind of the, the guy who wanted to play football a certain way or someone who had the confidence and the aggressiveness to want to try something like the Wildcat on that big of a stage? We were 
not the risky team. No, we were uh, a Parcells team, a Sperano team, and, and our, our identity from the very first day of him coming in was we were going to be a tough, hard-hitting, in-the-trenches running team. And it was there was no surprise about that. Um, and that's what that's what practice was. I mean, practice was hard. Practice was hitting. Practice was tough, and, and coach was there yelling at us to make sure that's that's what our personality was. And if you were if that didn't work for you, or you were too soft to be part of that, then you weren't going to be there. Uh, so we were not this this risky team of let's try some trick plays all the time. It was, it was necessary at that point, but we were a a ground and pound team, and there was no mistaking that. And that's that's that was Sperano's attitude. You know, he had that. Um, that East Coast tough guy. If we've got a problem, we're gonna we're gonna rumble in the streets kind of attitude, and he brought it to the football field. Now, one of the things that we've heard also, though, is a, a certain humanity about Coach Sperano and and the way that he genuinely cared about his players. Uh, a few reporters have given voice to it, so I was curious to get your vantage point on it. Uh, you talked about kind of hard nose and difficult practices and all that stuff, but was there either a softer side or a side that you felt? genuinely cared about you as a person, Greg Camarillo. Absolutely. And that's, those are the stories that I think are, are coming out. Um, there's a lot of hard ass football coaches out there and, and that don't have that other side, but um, you're seeing all these players talk about how much you actually cared. And it, and it really came out um, when you met with him in person. So if you you know spent time in his office, you got a, you got a different person. It wasn't this guy that's going to yell and scream at the, a calm demeanor guy that's going to going to talk to you and be honest with you. And I think that's how you can tell if someone really cares. If he, he was going to give it to you straight to try to make you a better person, a uh, better player. Um, and then his family, you know, his, his wife, Jeanette is one of the sweetest, nicest people in the world. And at first I was like, how is this dude that's yelling and screaming nonstop married to the nicest person in the world? Um, and then you, you kind of peel back the layers and you realize that, you know, his persona on the football field as a head coach is different than, than, you know, the, the family man that he was and the family man that cared about football players. Um, and he knew that he knew what he needed to do to motivate a team. And then he also knew what he, you know, how to take care of his players and how to care about people. Yeah. I found him to be really sentimental about a bunch of different things. I mean, even like his passion for the Mets, which, uh, you know, was, which he would kind of wear uh-huh. on his sleeve. Like, I mean, he was just like regular Joe Schmo sports fan, like uh, yeah. in the way that he operated there. And again, you don't see that from a lot of coaches um, in that 2008 season, you know, it went beyond just that, that one game because you guys didn't, play that well actually over the next couple of weeks or well, you won a game and then and then lost a couple and then you went on a tear um ended up winning 10 out of i believe it was 10 out of the last uh 11 and end up winning in the meadowlands against the jets against brett Favre. i remember that locker room really well because it's one of the most jubilant locker rooms that i've been in that experience of winning the division and doing it there against that quarterback do you remember anything about what Tony said after the game to the team? I don't. Um, I, I just remember how fun it was, and you know, for to lead a team from the total dumps, being a, you know a terrible team off a terrible year, and then bring a group of guys together that quickly. So we, um, like you said, we had a rough start. We were zero and two, and then two and two, and then two and four. Uh, and at two and four, you know, I, I'm already starting to think about my off season. Like we're not like playoffs. So you know, we're not going to make playoffs at two and four. Uh, but for him to keep us together and then keep us rallying and then the amount of fun that that is to come together as a team, to go on this role. And then Dolphin fans have been 
uh, we had been on such a drought, you know, they, they had been with us through thick and thin and then to finally have a community coming together, a team coming together uh, and just keep riding that wave. And I, I wasn't even there for the last so-and-so games because I, I tore my ACL week 12, I think it was. Um, but just to be part of that ride and see history happening, you know, and see a team change that much, it was it was something special. And sort of, do, do you have any kind of stories that, that you feel like you wanted to share? I imagine the the memories kind of come flooding back today, and, and I imagine kind of you have the ability in your post-football career to maybe think about some of the things that happened over the course of your time, and, and obviously today I imagine a lot of those thoughts are running through your head. Do you have anything that you want to share with our audience in particular about Tony and, and obviously something that you might have been thinking about today in the aftermath of this news? Yeah, um, you know, just the kind of the, the roller coaster ride that, that I experienced with Coach Sperano, uh he was the first coach that I had that was a yeller. Um, I is not that's not necessarily what motivates me. And so I took it very personally. At, you know, at first he, he just run around practice and said, hey, come on, Camarillo, shit. Um, <laughs> I'm cool to cuss on podcast. Oh, right? of course. Yes, yes, yes go ahead. Yes. <laughs> Um, and that, and it was hard for me because here I am, a, a backup guy that's always been fighting for a roster spot. And anytime a head coach gets your, you know, yells your name out, you're like, oh, you know, there's the end of this career. Um, so going into, oh, I want to say our second or third preseason game, we're going into Jacksonville the week before I got called for holding on a kickoff return. So here I am, probably 60, 70 yards away from Sperano, and I can hear him yelling, "Damn it, Camarillo!" from across the field and I, and and I'm like man dude this coach is this coach is tough like I, you know I don't know if I'm, I'm gonna make this and was down on myself was down on football we go into Jacksonville uh, I finally get some catches nothing amazing but you know I'm playing football again I'm getting catches uh, and then he congratulates you you know makes it makes a point of it to not just yell at you when you're doing something wrong but to praise you when you're doing something right um and that kind of re-sparked my, my energy, re-sparked my, my desire to keep playing. And then, um, you know, for him to have the faith to, to put me out there, I'm, I, I was untested. I didn't have – I maybe had eight catches or something going into that year. And for him to give me that opportunity and have the faith in me, um, it totally changed my, my life, my career, my perspective on Coach Barano. Um, and then learning, you know, his style through the next couple of years and learning that, he yells at you to motivate you. He yells at you to make sure you're getting things right, uh, but that he cares about you behind that. He's not just yelling to yell. He yells at you because he wants you to be better. Um, it really, I mean, it changed everything. You know, I, I owe a lot of my career to, to the opportunity that he gave you. Well, Greg, we appreciate you doing this on short notice. Again, we'd love to get you on the pod on happier subjects uh, here sometime soon. You can follow him at Catch Camarillo on Twitter. Of course, uh, always a, a special place in Dolphin fans' hearts, um, not not just for the, the, the catch in the 2007 game uh, for the one victory, but also being a part of that 11-win team and that division title uh, team that got to the playoffs, which, as we know, with the Dolphins, haven't been as many playoff appearances since uh greg really appreciate you doing it i appreciate it fellas all right we want to thank greg camarillo for joining us here on short notice and one of the things we wanted to do tonight 
was talk to someone else who covered the Dolphins during that period of time, was actually with Dolphins.com from 2007, the year before Tony Sperano arrived in Miami, all the way up through 2014. So covered the Joe Philbin and Dan Campbell eras as well. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk to Andy Kent today is because he has a little bit of a different perspective than the average media person would because he was working for the team at dolphins.com, which obviously affords you a little bit more access to the coaches. You get to know them. And I know in Andy's case, not only did he get to know Tony Sperano, but also his family got to know the Sperano family. So Andy, we appreciate it. You've been a big supporter of us here at the network and we appreciate you joining us here. And I just wanted to start uh, with this. So you're, you started with the team in 2007. Obviously that was not a season to remember the 2007 season under for different reasons. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) right. Exactly. Exactly. We got into that a little bit here with Camarillo uh, prior to you coming on the transition from camp Cameron to Tony Sperano. Can you take us through a little bit of what went into that coaching search that you knew of and sort of your first interactions with Tony when he was announced as the head coach of the Miami Dolphins? We didn't really know that much about a search. I mean, because they pretty much knew where they were going. uh, Probably right around the time the team went to London (laughs) after, you know, they still hadn't won a game and, and all of us in the media got to meet with Wayne Huizenga and, he got to vent about where things were going. Um, we Everybody knew that, you know, Wayne had been talking with Parcells for a little bit. So right near the end of the season, right heading into that last week is when they kind of, the rumor started transitioning through the locker room that uh, they were going to fire Cam Cameron and they were bringing Parcells in and he had his people in place. So uh, before we knew it, Cam Cameron was coming around to those of us who worked closer with them to say goodbye and thank us for, uh, one wonderful season with him <laughs> and uh it was that was kind of an awkward moment i remember uh ethan you remember barry butel barry and i worked closely together uh, both in print and in the fin side uh, doing some uh, fins radio and uh, cam cameron came to the office just knocked on the door really quick to say thanks for everything you guys did and uh, uh i wish you the best of luck and then when he left barry and i kind of looked at each other like well that was kind of awkward almost as awkward as uh let's turn the thumbs this direction. So <laughs> we were anxious to see how much different it was going to be under Parcells and Sperano. And uh, we know that it, it just, that the culture changed immediately. And uh, at the beginning, Tony was, you know, his first time as a head coach, he was a little bit shy. He was a little bit standoffish. It looked like a little bit uncomfortable at the beginning, but um like, as you mentioned earlier, since I did in my role at selfish.com, got to be kind of the friendly guy with him. Uh, he opened up a little more to me early on about, uh, you know, how he wanted to do things as, as a coach. And, and then we, we saw him kind of take it that direction once training camp started. What were some of those conversations like? What, what did he end up telling you about what, you know, what his philosophy was as a coach? And one of the things that we've seen today in kind of the aftermath of his passing was a lot of people talking about what he was like with his players and how much he genuinely cared for his players in a way that not a lot of football coaches do. What did he convey to you about the way he wanted to go about his work? Just about the, the, the passion and just wanting to kind of re- invigorate the, the team and the players and, and, and get them to love playing football and have fun out there. But at the same time, you know, put in the hard work necessary to, to, to turn things around. I mean, you know, obviously he knew that he had a big task on his hand coming into a locker room that 
you know, all the returning veterans had just gone through the, a one in 15 season and uh, didn't feel too, too good about it. He needed to win them over. He needed to win over the veterans. Um, but, you know, he just kind of realized that, you know, I mean, he was a Parcells guy, so he knew that he, if he could kind of do a hybrid of the way Parcells does things, which, you know, Parcells was not always a player's coach. He was kind of, you know, get your butt out there and, and, and don't talk back to me type thing. He needed to be tough, but he also knew that he needed to kind of get the player's ear and let them know that, that he was there to, to, to help them get better as players, that for the team to get better as a team, and then also that he cared about them as people. And uh, as time went on, you got to see him. You got to see that in action on the field, um, off the field, on the on the team plane, at the team hotel. You just got to see how he interacted with the players and their families. And and so when he mentioned that early on, I, to see that transition the way he had planned it was was something special to watch. One of the things that strikes me about Tony was that he had this very gruff public persona, but I actually found in covering him, and I was covering him a little bit differently than you were, because obviously you were on the inside and we were, you know, the enemy, the media. Um, but I, fa- I found him to be sort of shy in some ways, like not at all boastful about things, uh, not taking credit. Uh, you know, and, and again, it was very different from what we'd experienced because, you know, I came in, I mean, the first coach I covered with the Dolphins was Jimmy Johnson. And obviously that's, that's a very right. different experience, right? Then once that, you know, had a little Jimmy in him, uh, it was a little bit sort of easier to get to know uh, a little bit more of kind of the guy you go have a beer with uh, type and, and, you know, sometimes stumbled over himself a little bit, you know, then, yeah. you know, you had, you had Saban. I mean, I, I'm going to skip over Bates cause he wasn't there long enough, but you had Saban obviously who, you know, hated the media and most people in general. And, and that was a, you know, a different experience. And, and Cameron, who, as you said, I, I think came in, you know, thinking he was a little bit smarter than everybody. And, and that just didn't yeah. end up out that well uh, tony uh, to always struck me as uh you know very self-effacing uh n- not again wanting to take credit and, and i go to the wildcat situation and, and we talked to camarillo about this too but i you know i go back to how that season started like that season did not start well they, they lost a couple of games uh one of them was yeah. a blowout right and then you know they go they're going up to new england and, you know, the way that that story worked was it wasn't Tony's idea. It was David Lee's idea, uh, one of the assistants, the quarterback's coach, that came up with the idea of the Wildcat. And what I always have given Tony credit for was being modest enough, I guess, to take an assistant's idea and say, okay, let's try it. It didn't have to be his idea, whereas with Nick, it always had to be and- – and then, and then, obviously, you have the ability to take credit for outsmarting one of the greatest football minds of our time, and he declined to do so. Repeatedly declined right. to do so. Repeatedly. And so I want to get to sort of your recollection of the Wildcat, that game up in New England, and, and kind of how Tony reacted to that the rest of the season. Well, to set that up, I, I need to backtrack a little bit for you to the, the second game of the season, the blowout loss you were talking about. That was out in Arizona. And, uh, of course, uh, I mean, they just got obliterated by the Cardinals in that game. And, again, uh, I would fly with the team on the team charter, so I got to kind of deal with the moods both after a good, a big win or a big loss like that. And uh, it, would be, it would be set up kind of awkwardly for me because I remember getting on the plane. Now, 
Tony and the coaches, they'd already boarded the plane before the rest of us. Uh, you know, I, Joe Rose would be in that group and the, the broadcasters and everything. But we, uh, at least that year, we all, we still boarded up from the front. So I come walking on the plane with my, I'm, jug, I'm trying to juggle my bags and I've got my laptop kind of resting on my bag while I'm still trying to write a story because I got to send this story before the plane takes off because for some reason we didn't have wireless on these planes. Didn't make a lot of sense. But I'm walking on the plane and I'm looking, the first person I see is Tony, who's obviously not in a very good mood. He looks right at me, kind of looks at me and is like, what the heck are you doing with that computer? What do you, what could you possibly actually ask me? What could you possibly have to still have to write about that game? <laughs> like, because they lost so bad. And I just kind of, you know, I got a little nervous and I'm like, uh, I'm still catching up a little bit, coach. Um, I'm just going to get out of your way. But maybe moments later, you see the coaches kind of huddling up there. So obviously in the mythology of that, that story is that they hatched this wildcat plan on the flight back from Arizona because it's a long flight. Mm-hmm. Well, they definitely were talking up there. And David Lee was up there, and, and obviously they were commiserating and coming up with a plan. You fast forward to a week later in New England, they unveil the Wildcat, and we all know the end result of that game. I come walking on the plane again after that game, and now Tony's in a much better mood. And he shoots a look at me, and he's like, uh, you better not put that computer down the rest of this flight. I sure you hope you're going to write a lot about that game. <laughs> <laughs> Which... Unfortunately, I still was going to have to write just as fast because we still had a plane with no wireless. But <laughs> right. that just kind of showed his, his, you know, the, the different demeanors. I mean, you, you could the angry Tony Sprano was not somebody you'd want to be around more than 30 seconds. But the happy Tony Sprano, who was very happy after that game, uh, you got to see him let down the uh, the guard a little bit. I imagine over the course of the day, you've had plenty of time to think about uh, your time with Tony and, and sort of, I imagine the, the memories came flooding back. Do you have sort of a, you know, a, a, a particular anecdote that you, you would want to tell our audience about your time with Tony or something that you remember distinctly about him? Well, we, we found out early on that we had a, a unique connection because he's a New Haven guy from uh, New Haven, Connecticut. I grew up in Connecticut uh, about an hour away from New Haven. So we would always talk about Connecticut and what it was like growing up in that state and, uh, and how much fun it was there. And, um, you know, he would talk about the, the pizza place that he liked to go to there and how he met his wife and raising his kids and, and everything. And so we always, you know, in, in down, when there was a downtime or, you know, when we were at the team hotel and I happened to catch him in the lobby when he was heading to do a workout or go do a run, you know, he'd ask me a little bit about again, you know, like, uh, you know, what, what part of Connecticut did you grow up in again? You know, I'm surprised we didn't cross paths when we grew up because we're, you know, we're five years apart, which that's the other devastating thing about this. When the news came today, I'm like, my God, forgot how young this guy was and, uh, you know, and, and what a family man he was. But that was the anecdote, and it kind of carried on throughout his tenure there. And ironically, that last season, it was actually the second-to-last press conference he did before he was fired. Uh, I showed up with uh there's there's a restaurant here in boca called nick's new haven pizza and they when i went to dinner there one time and told them that i worked for the dolphins they were like we're big sperano fans and i know that he loves the soda that we have here that's you can only buy in new haven why don't we we're going to give you a you know a six pack of the soda can you bring it to him the next time you see him and i did i showed up to the press conference and uh some of the rest of the media in there were kind of like 
you know, what's going on? What is Andy trying to bribe him for an interview or something? He doesn't really need to do that. <laughs> but uh, Tony was like, you know, he, he looked at it and he goes, oh, my God, that's my favorite soda. And then he turned around and looked at the rest of the media and he goes, you see, that's how you get that, that's how you get an extra lengthy interview with me. If you, you if you know what I like, Andy knows what I like. And there we go. And he walked off with it with a big smile on his face. And then the next morning we get the press conference from Steve Roth that he's been fired. And uh, that, wow. that was kind of a, a little sense of irony there. I'm like, I hope I didn't like put the final nail in there. You know, that was, that was a, an awkward, an ironic moment, but definitely, a, you know, a fun connection that we had. Final thing for you, Andy, we appreciate you taking the time. Um, you know, one of the other things that strikes me about Tony is the dignity with which he carried himself after the organization put him in a really terrible spot and, and, you know, you, you have the owner of the team, the general manager of the team who came in with Tony and Jeff Ireland. I mean, they were supposed to be peas in a pod. Basically the Parcells was putting them together because they'd worked together in Dallas and you've got Ireland and Ross going off to try to get Jim, uh, Jim Harbaugh to coach Harbaugh. the Dolphins. And, and at the, same, at the same time, Tony doesn't know about it, finds out secondhand uh, what's actually happening there. And yet Tony went about his business the next year, even though it was pretty clear. And, and I know those around the team knew that the, the relationship between Sperano and Ireland uh, had broken down at that stage. Uh, any thoughts on that year uh, afterwards? Because you mentioned, I mean, you, bring, you brought him soda, he got fired the next day. But we pretty much knew that he was going to get fired after that season, especially the way that the previous off season went. Yeah, he, he definitely handled himself with class. I mean, I remember the, the very, very awkward moment of that press conference they held up in the conference room uh, where they were trying to kind of put a spin on what happened. And you had, I actually was at the, the long conference table up there. I was sitting right next to Tony. And then it was next to him was Steve Roth. And on the other side of Steve was Jeff Ireland. and while they're talking and trying to explain themselves and the whole Harbaugh trip and everything, I was so close to Tony that I could feel his right leg just shaking nonstop because he, he was, you know, not wanting to be there at that press conference. And definitely as they would say one, well, let me just say one spin after another, you could just see his, his face turning a little bit more red, but he kept his mouth quiet and then uh, he went about it. And like you said, that the next season, he, he just was full go. I mean, he was approaching that season like he was going to stay on for the remainder of his contract extension, and he never took a shot, which he could have, but he didn't. And uh, and that just said a lot about the class of the guy uh, as a coach and as a person in general. Andy, again, we appreciate the time. I'm Hopefully we'll be able to involve you more here in some things on the network, but definitely wanted to get your thoughts here uh, after the passing of Tony Sperano. I, I know also that, that your wife uh, you know, developed a relationship with his wife, so this, this went beyond just the two of you. And, and I was thinking about that today, too, because um, he has three kids. Is that right, I think? I, I know they're grown, yeah. but, uh, but, but yeah. three kids. Uh, one was a coach, or is a coach, actually, um, and so this yeah. is going to be re really, uh, really rough on, on them tonight too. Andy, thanks for taking the time, man. We will talk soon. My, my pleasure. And also, you know, his daughter just got married like two and a half weeks ago. So, wow. oh, that's, wow. uh, my God. That, that's, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess on the positive, he got to walk her down right. the aisle, which you know she'll carry that memory with her. But that adds an extra note of sadness to it for sure. Wow. Wow. That's, uh, that's crazy. That's crazy. All right, Andy, thanks for the time, man. We will talk soon. All right. Ethan. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. 
And now we're going to play a clip from Fish Tank. Now, this episode airs this week. This is with OJ McDuffie and Seth Levitt, one of the new podcasts on our network. They sat down with Mike Pouncey and Marquise Pouncey this week, and it just so happens that Mike Pouncey spoke a little about Tony Sperano. And I love Coach Sperano. He was one. He he brought me in. I loved him as a coach. He believed in me. And every single day he came up to me. He was he gave me just words of wisdom just to keep me going as, as a young football player in the, in the league. And I, just, I didn't want him to get fired because he was like, man, I was like, this is my guy. You know what I mean? And whenever they chose to fire Coach Sperano, I'm telling you, the impact he had on our football team. He had a dinner at his house that night and the whole football team came. Everybody showed up to his house that night. And everybody's like, wow, like Coach Sperano meant something to this football team. Right. He, he was a good guy for this football team. We just didn't have the good, we didn't have that many good players at the time, but he was a good football coach for our football team. And I think when everyone showed up to that dinner, it kind of showed me that, man, you know, maybe we kind of made the wrong decision going that way by firing. We just didn't have the guys right. because I seen other coaches get fired and they have the same thing and no one show up to it. And I'm like, man, what he meant to our organization at the time, I think was, was really, really good because they had, they had good years and they had bad years and we had really good picks under Coach Sperano. So, I mean, I have a lot of respect for him. For our final clip, we spoke a little bit earlier this week with Omar Kelly and Chris Perkins for our Sun Sentinel Dolphins training camp preview that will air on the network a little bit later this week. During that episode, Omar Kelly spoke about Tony Sperano. Tony Sperano had a way. It was us against them. Right. And it didn't matter who the them was. The them could be the media. Tony Sperano had a way of making that team. Remember when they were fighting back mm-hmm. and they were winning? And then they lost to Philadelphia while they lost Jake Long and they lost their left tackle. And they, they like had a center playing tackle mm-hmm. and they, they, they couldn't protect the quarterback. And the management looked at that like mm, that one loss. We got to get them out of here and put in Todd Bowles mm-hmm. because I do believe that team would have won the rest of their games and produced a respectable season. And then it would have been hard to fire Tony Sperano. So they jumped on the opportunity. But it was Tony's leadership, which is basically he turned that team into us against the Dolphins fan base, mm-hmm. us against the Dolphins ownership, us against the meat, us against everybody. And they really rallied around that thing. All right. We want to thank everybody for participating in this special episode of the Five Reasons Sports Flagship Podcast. We'll be back a little bit later this week with an episode with Omar Kelly and Chris Perkins and also an episode with Chris Kaufman of Three Yards Per Carry. Talk to you soon. Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.